I am speaking to you at a moment of grave crisis. I'm Jeff Turner, and this is Recall. It's a series about history. Not the ancient past, but history that's still hot to the touch. In this first season, I explore a revolutionary political movement that brought a modern democracy to the brink. You can find Recall, How to Start a Revolution, on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hi, I'm Pia Chattopadhyay. Welcome to the Sunday Magazine podcast, featuring the stories we first brought you Sunday, February the 25th on CBC Radio. Two years since Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine. Two years of resistance. And two years that have forever changed what it means to be Ukrainian. We're starting today with an esteemed Ukrainian reporter who's been there through it all. After that, despite a growing backlash to diversity initiatives in the workplace, we'll hear about how strides are being made for more equitable spaces. South Carolina has spoken, and it chose Donald Trump in its Republican primary yesterday. We'll discuss what it means for the American political landscape. You'll also hear the beautiful sounds and story about a harmonious pairing of Ukrainian and Newfoundland artists. And before we send you on your way, we'll leave you with reasons to fall or fall back in love with winter. It all starts right now on The Sunday Magazine. All right, let's begin by going back to two years ago yesterday. It's the evening of February 24th, 2022. And this is what Canadians who tuned into CBC TV's The National heard. It came before dawn in the Ukrainian capital. Not only the sounds of an invasion finally begun, but notice of a world order being turned on its head. Air raid sirens sounded in Kyiv on and off. Kharkiv in the east and Mariupol in the south both came under heavy fire. When Russian troops invaded Ukraine that February, there was a general belief in the international community that Ukraine's capital would fall in just a few days. But two years later, Kyiv is still standing even as the war in Ukraine drags on. Tens of thousands of civilians and soldiers have been killed and millions of Ukrainians have been displaced. For the past couple of years, allied countries around the world contributed billions in foreign aid and military assistance to help Ukraine. And the world watched on as Ukraine launched an unexpected and heroic defense against Russia. But Ukraine's victories have now stalled, and so has the fight for renewed funding from countries, most notably from the United States. Ilya Ponomarenko wants people to remember why this fight, this war in Europe, is still so important. Ilya is a Ukrainian journalist who has been reporting on the front lines of this war from day one. 
He has a new memoir. It is called I Will Show You How It Was, The Story of Wartime Kiev. It dives into those early days covering a war where, for many of his family and friends, the front line was the front lawn. Ilya, good morning to you. Hello, Canada. (laughs) For two years now, Ilya, we in Canada and around the world have been watching this war. You have been living through it. So first off, just tell me, how are you doing? Well, I'm living a very safe, comparably safe and uh, productive working life doing what I can do for my country as a journalist, uh, doing the best I can uh, as part of my profession in wartime. And thinking about the Ukrainian military, uh, thanks to which I can do this. I can do this from home in safety, in comfort, and you know, actually do my work, which is what I'm doing. So I'm enjoying the very special gift that the Ukrainian military gave to, to this country uh, two years ago as it managed to liberate Bucha and, uh, and the rest of Kiev Oblast at the Battle of Kiev. And uh, we keep enjoying this greatest gift for the last two years of this terrible war. So we're alive and we're working and safe thanks to them. So this is what I'm doing and thinking about these days. Hmm. I imagine two years ago you couldn't think of this day uh, two years later. Let's go back to that early morning when the war began. Do you remember, like, was there a moment for you when you knew, look, here it is, our whole country now is at war with Russia? Yeah, of course. Um, you know, we uh, were part of a really huge defense community that you know, cares about the military, that, you know, revolves around all these issues of war and peace, uh, of Ministry of Defense. So as journalists, we... Uh, generally knew um, almost for sure that that's going to happen. And uh, in the final night before the uh, um, the doomsday, as we call them, of course, you know, we journalists, we rarely spoke about this, uh, you know, vocally. But in those final hours, we were generally understanding that that's, that's coming before the night is over, something like that. So uh, we... Uh, and I'm talking about myself and my colleagues from the Kiev Independent. We're, we were really reluctant to, you know, get back from office to our homes, to basically, you know, unsee each other. But yeah, you know, in, in journalists in Ukraine, um, in defense community, we were connected uh, with the lots of chats on messengers, and we were sharing information, of course. And uh, there was this message spread around that guys it's going to it's going to happen at either four or five o'clock in the morning so stay tuned say stay ready for this but but again it's not 100 percent. but there was this feeling that we're, we're coming to this and we we should spend some hours in silence thinking about the future thinking what we should do about this so yes to me those final hours were spent in the dark of the room, of my room in Kiev, um, in, front, in front of the laptop, sipping whiskey, thinking about that we should be ready, that this country is going to be thrown apart, but we'll be doing what we should, and uh, we'll make everything possible and impossible to make this an unwinnable war for Russia. Hmm. So, of course, when um, Vladimir Putin came up live on Russian TV with the infamous speech on generally declaration of war on Ukraine. 
So there was no emotions, only just, you know, the the moment of switching to the plan of what we do. So, yeah. And so you said there you were waiting, you knew it was coming. And as you said, um, just switching to the plan. You actually left Kiev at the start of the war, but then you returned back to the capital. How, why did you make that decision? Uh, when it comes to me, um, yes, I did leave Kiev um, at the end of the day one of the invasion because uh, I was very lucky to persuade my mother into leaving Donbass um, and coming to Kiev in the final hours before the invasion. So she took the night train, the last one, the very last one before the invasion, after many, many weeks of uh, of me yelling into the phone and trying to make her you know, come to Kiev, get out of, of Donbass. So uh, I had my mother by my side in Kiev. Um, so there was this decision that I need to take her to a safe place and uh, then get back to Kiev um, f- for doing my job. So uh, I had an arrangement with my flatmate, who is a driver who had the car. So. It was this decision that my flatmate leaves Kiev, but we're coming to my girlfriend's place uh, very far in West Ukraine um, on the border of Moldova to make sure that my mother is safe and fine and good because it was not a very good idea to be uh, having a 50-year-old woman by your side in a city under siege mm. that, that is about to fall. So... Yes, and I did this, and despite a lot of yelling, despite a lot of persuasion, I, at some point, being in West Ukraine, who managed to make it um, through the chaos of the first hours of war, I knew it that I'll be terribly ashamed for the rest of my life if I don't do this. So it took me a couple of hours of talking to my friend, who's a roommate who never wants to get back to Kiev, who's really scared and very rightfully scared of what was happening to the capital city. But we both came to our senses and decided that we need to get back. And then whatever happens, happens. Mm. We can't leave our city that gave us so much. So that was a choice. We came back not to be ashamed of ourselves. Remind us how close the Russian military actually came to entering Kiev. I said at the beginning, you know, the international community thought the capital would fall within within days. Remind us of how close the Russian military got. Very close. Um, I would say that you know the fall of Kiev was so close that I think even the when it comes to very optimistic people, we knew that sooner or later that's going to happen. That Russians will penetrate the city, and uh, you know, actual urban battle within the borders of Kiev will commence. So that was um, that seemed to be. Um, a very plausible scenario, but uh, Russians and you know there are several man-made miracles that happened, as we call them. First, Russians, yes, they uh, started with this bold operation of landing at the Hostomel airfield, which is uh, just outside Kiev, a real huge strategic airfield. They wanted to capture it and invite even more aircraft filled with paratroopers uh, to gain a foothold on the outskirts of Kiev and then move on. So, but miraculously, um, but the end of the first day of the invasion, that landing failed. 
So Russians, uh, in this famous episode of this war, they managed to capture the uh, Hastomel airfield, or alternative, it's called Antonov airfield. Uh, they tried to gain a foothold, but suddenly, out of a sudden, the Ukrainian military managed to to destroy this first wave of of, mm. of land. So the the first step was really problematic and failed right from the start. When it comes to uh, later um, course of events in this battle, there was this extremely, extremely dangerous moment of the Battle of Moshun. It's a really small town just outside Kiev, northwest of Kiev. And basically, a gateway into into the city uh, across the Irpin River. Not a wide river, pretty small river, but still, this river south um, south west and northwest and and west of Kiev became a barrier that, in the twenty first century, became a huge barrier for the for the Russian military because all the bridges were blown up, and this battle of Moshun, the small town, was the only Russian chance to penetrate to this barrier and make it into Kiev. Mm. And they were so close, they managed to cross the, the river. They managed to enter this small town of Moshun. They were just a, a hair long away from making their way deeper into Kiev. But again, in the second half of March, the Ukrainian military managed to regroup and deal dealt a uh, uh, defeat and throw uh, Russian military back uh, across the river. So that was another miracle that saved Kiev. Why, do, so- why do you think the Russians miscalculated Ukrainians' ability and willingness to fight? Because we saw such a pushback at the beginning of this war. What, what, what yes. did they get? Um, the problem is, you know, there are lots of factors that contributed into their grand mistakes, but uh, it dates back to pretty long time ago. And um, it comes from bitter under understatement and underestimation of Ukraine as a nation, as a nation who wants to have its nation and be independent, as um, as people who are loyal to their government and the um, the statehood that they have. So these miscalculations and uh, perception of Ukrainians as you know as a nation not worthy of, of the statehood, it gave them um, the expectation that the Ukrainian military will not be loyal to the nationhood and will not be fighting hard enough. So they won't be loyal to the um, to the government and to the flag. They won't be you know, fighting till the last drop of, of, of blood uh, to make Russian stop. But in reality, it, it appeared that a lot of regular people are ready to stand up and fight to join uh, territorial defense units to you know do journalistic work you know charity work to help mm-hmm. military people so it appears it suddenly appeared out of a sudden that a nation wants to uh keep to its to its flag wants to stay as an independent nation and moreover it's ready to fight for this so they were in many ways slaves to their own pretty chauvinistic um, imagination of ukrainians and, and ukraine in mm-hmm. many ways that's that's a very broad definition, but still, you know, it, it, it explains a lot of smaller mistakes and miscalculations that they made. Mm-hmm. So they believe that Ukraine is a real nation that wants its statehood and it loves um, to have its nation. Yeah, it's problematic. It has a lot of problems in itself, but still Ukrainians want Ukraine. Um, that was the core, I would say, of, of, 
all, all the issues that we saw in the Battle of Kiev and in this defeat of mm. Russia. If you're just joining us this morning, I'm speaking with Ukrainian journalist Ilya Ponomarenko about two years of war in Ukraine. So, Ilya, you're a reporter with the Kiev Independent, which launched just a few months before the full-scale invasion started. And one of the things that you reveal in your book is that the Canadian embassy in Kiev played a role in launching um, the Kiev Independent. Can you tell me about that? Uh, yes, Canadians, Canadian um, diplomatic mission was really helpful in terms of uh, giving us a grant uh, just to, to start up, you know, to start all, all the all the stuff um, up. So uh, the thing is that when the Kiev post was killed uh, as a result of uh, the entire newsroom dismissal, uh, we gathered together back as a team and we basically had nothing. We never had any office, any money, nothing. Absolutely, we, everything had to be launched from scratch. Um, and uh, a lot of people, entities also, they were really believing in our cause. We had a lot of sympathies from many people and entities. Uh, some, uh, for instance, um, co-working spaces in Kiev were inviting us to to work at their premises just for free, absolutely no money involved. Um, lawyers also um, suggested that they help the, help us uh, with legal issues pro bono. And many embassies, such as the Canadian embassies, they uh, supported us with um, public statements of concerns regarding the, uh, um, the death of the Kiev Post, but also some money and organizational things. So yes, in many ways, we had to work and launch the first version on the website, um, the first newsletters, something that we could do you know, with our laptops in cafes hmm. at home. So the Canadian embassy and Canadians helped us with the first small capital to at least launch something, you know, to have a good start. So Canada has a role in this, yes. You mentioned the words of support that came from Canada. And it kind of reminds me of yesterday when we saw our prime minister, along with other Western leaders in Kyiv as a show of solidarity, where the prime minister said to Ukrainians, your fight is our fight. To what extent, two years on, do these kinds of symbolic gestures by politicians have meaning for Ukrainians? Well, it generally has, but I'm gonna not going to lie to you that in general audience, uh, especially when it comes to the Ukrainian military, um, there are conversations and thoughts about this is that, you know, we've had more than enough symbolic gestures and words of support. So let's better talk about, you know, actual things happening on the ground and in terms of weapons, munitions, uh, equipment. So, yeah, we uh, it's it's seen it's very vocal when um, in Ukrainian media, when foreign leaders, particularly Canadian Prime Minister coming to places like Bucha to pay respects and uh, saying a lot of encouragement. But uh, yes, I, I have to admit that um, the need for actual steps and uh, munitions provided to Ukrainian military is far more stressing right now. Mm. And you could talk about. Yeah, um, Ukrainians have been asking the international community to continue and to up its support for Ukraine for as long as it takes. I don't have to tell you that we've seen um, in the U.S. the Congress being embroiled in debate over renewed funding, choking the flow of foreign aid to Ukraine. 
In in your book, you write about the enthusiasm and fighting spirit displayed by Ukrainians when this war started. And I'm wondering, given the current context, where the world, um, you know, has is not supporting it in the way that Ukrainians want it to, at least financially, how have attitudes changed inside your country? Well, the attitudes had changed. I'm not saying it's dramatic. It's a dramatic change, but of course, you know, we in Ukraine um, on the third, as we enter the third year of the full-scale war, we have a lot of problems that would be uh, very usual for a very long, a protracted war against a superior enemy, um, in which uh, we end up being on a weak side. Of course, there is this uh, growing uh, war fatigue. There is this. Mm, there's this frustration from seeing a lot of um, soldier graves on um, in cemeteries across Ukraine. Hmm. Um, there are lots of, you know, Ukrainians are a very open society and um, we basically have no military um, wartime censorship, something like that. So everything is in the open. You know, it's a boiling society. So every, everybody is in the open. Everybody explain um, discusses things so a lot of problems end up in its own social media on discussions so yeah of course people know about uh, about high ca- ca- death toll casualties um of course people talk about problems uh, of of a million strong um, military conscripted military such as barely uh competent military commanders lots of problems corruption issues so yeah this these things you know the prolonged bloody and extremely costly war it affects um sentiments of course mm. uh, somebody in the media was very right to say that the uh, the first year of the full-scale invasion was about immense man-made miracles the second year was about a lot of broken promises and broken hopes with the unsuccessful counter uh, counteroffensive, with the broken hopes of ending this war on a good note for Ukraine, the third year becomes um, getting back uh, to you know survival mode in a very unfortunate circumstances and with lots of problems that have um, accumulated and collected within the Ukrainian society. But um, despite obvious and unescapable inevitable problems and grievances. Um, and fatigue. Still, according to the latest polls, as we can judge, seventy percent of Ukrainians are still um, ready to, you know, to, to um, go through the uh, toils of war, of wartime, and still ready to basically ready to go on, despite all the problems that we have been discussing. So, the fight goes on, and uh, we're in the middle of a very complicated period on this. But uh, Ukraine is still standing, even though yes. There are tons and tons of problems and 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 very bad uh, tendencies inside Ukrainian society. Ilya, we'll leave it there. I want to thank you so much for joining us and um, for your book to really give us a, a deep look into what these last couple of years have been like. Appreciate your time so much. Take care. Thank you. Ilya Ponomarenko is a Ukrainian journalist. He's the author of a new memoir. It is called I Will Show You How It Was, The Story of Wartime Kiev.
In the late spring of 2020, there was a lot of talk about having reached a turning point in the fight for racial equality as widespread protests erupted around the world following the murder of George Floyd at the hands of four Minneapolis police officers. Its ripples soon transcended the streets, prompting new diversity initiatives from classrooms to boardrooms. Fast forward to today, though, and those diversity, equity and inclusion programs are under new scrutiny, particularly in the United States. Several American states have banned DEI efforts on campuses and in government departments. But my next guest says, against the odds, strides in social justice have still been made. Ichioma Olu's new book highlights the visible and invisible anti-racism work being done by people from many walks of life. It is called Be a Revolution, how everyday people are fighting oppression and changing the world and how you can too. Ichioma, hello. It is nice to meet you. Oh, it's so lovely. You have been writing about race and racism uh, for about a decade or so now. We collectively um, have been talking more about race and racism in recent years. And so I just want to set this up. Six years ago, you put out your your breakthrough book. Um, so you want to talk about race and for people who have not read that. This is sort of a, a guide for people about navigating this stuff. So Ijeoma, when we fast forward to 2024, have we gotten any better about talking about race and racism? I think that there are people coming to these discussions every day, right? So I think that it, a lot of people have gotten better. And then some people are just now realizing that it's something they should try to talk about. I think that a lot of us have a lot more verbiage around systemic racism and interpersonal racism that, that can be helpful for conversations. Uh, and I am seeing that kind of interpersonal uh, progress being made uh, systemically. You know, that, that's another story. Mm. I guess broadly, where are you seeing sort of the the traps or the pitfalls at this point? I think that it's really easy to learn words and not follow through with the actions that those words would entail, right? It's really easy to say I'm an anti-racist without actually having to engage in active anti-racism. And so I think that a lot of people's vocabulary has increased but that really critical look at how they move through the world and how they might be impacting systems and how they might be contributing to harm is something that we still have to make a lot of progress around. So if you this new book of yours is sort of taking that next step from, from its predecessor, it's looking at action that people can take towards um, racial justice. And that focus of this book was in part inspired, as I understand it, by a personal tragedy that you experienced. Can you just kind of connect those dots for me? Yeah, certainly. You know, um, when I decided to write this book, I was in this place of overall exhaustion, right? I had been writing about violent white supremacy for many years, and I was worn out and traumatized and tired, and I was going to take a break. And then, um, you know, I was wondering if this was how I wanted to take my break, if I wanted the last work I did for a while to be from this place, or if I wanted something more positive. And then in 2020, the pandemic hit. And our home burned down. <laughs> and oh, wow. in all of these sorts of disasters that we we're all facing, it really underscored to me how vital our communities are. It was once again, you know, story after story, including in my own personal life, of how no matter how bad things are, the reason why we survive and are able to survive in five moments of joy is because of community care and this really radical work that's being quietly done in our communities. And so your whole kind of thesis about this book, and I think it's important to talk about this kind of um, at at the top, is about 
you're very intentional about centering loving action rather than pain because especially in the last number of years um, when we've been hearing more about these stories, talking more about this, I think sometimes we get overshadowed all the good work that's being done and the strides that are being made by the very real but uncomfortable, painful, even traumatizing situations for some. So talk to me about the joy and love that you see in, in action here. You know, it really is the story of our survival. You know, it may not make headlines. It may not be sexy. You know, people want screaming and they want strife. And people really do, you know, want Black, Brown, and Indigenous pain on display. But the truth is, is that every single day, communities are coming together to provide food for families in need, to provide emergency housing, to interrupt conflict, you know, uh, to help, you know, neighbors stand up against unethical landlords. Like, all of these things are being done every single day. And we are finding new ways to challenge oppressive systems, ways to work around oppressive systems. And that is really the history of our survival generation after generation. Okay, here I go, raining on that parade. <laughs> uh, in a sense, I want to talk about DEIs. Uh, these are diversity, equity, inclusion initiatives. I think most people are familiar with them, maybe at their workplace or their school or an organization. And they really um, took a lot of traction in the last handful of years, pre-pandemic for sure. Now, and now we're seeing this pushback in the United States, but elsewhere too, uh, in our country and elsewhere. How would you characterize this pushback? What's your assessment of what this is all about? You know, I would say that the the characterization is basically trying to activate this kind of innate fear and racism in a populace. Um, it's not even about DEI and whether DEI is effective or not. Um, it's about giving these keywords of you'll be made to feel guilty, you might be losing out, someone might be getting something more than you because of this. That's really tying into this deep frustration that the American public has with a hyper-capitalist system that is exploitative of almost everybody. And mm. so it's basically saying, you unhappy? This is why. And it's a way to galvanize a base to support all of these you know, different initiatives. And it's really about consolidating political power. And so we are seeing this on the right. Um, and it's incredibly effective because you don't actually have to understand what DEI is, does, or claims to do in order to fall for these kind of keywords that are being thrown around. So tell me, what does DEI strive to do? Well, and you know what's funny is even in my book, I'm critical of DEI as it is practiced, as the way in which it has to practice. And I think no one agrees with me more often than Black DEI experts. <laughs> you know, they're like, I absolutely hear you. Everything you said was spot on. Um, but DEI is an effort, really, honestly, to make up for the lack of what HR, you know, was supposed to do, which is make sure that, you know, people are protected in their workspaces, that they are kind of, you know, their needs are represented. And of course, of course, we know that HR works for a company. But the truth is, is traditional HR never really wanted to handle racism. And DEI has been this space trying to fill this gap in, but it has no power, right? They're trying to educate people on diversity, equity, and inclusion, which is what DEI stands for, uh, for marginalized populations, so that spaces can become more inclusive, so that people are more safe, so that, you know, we can get more out of everyone in the space. And in theory, that's absolutely beautiful. The problem is, is that most DEI efforts, especially in em employee spaces, aren't really empowered. But when I talk to people in DEI in colleges and universities, they're very limited in what they're able to do. And they're trying so hard to just create some safety 
for marginalized populations in a space. Hmm. And what that often ends up meaning is you're watching a movie or film or taking a course and people get uncomfortable. And that can often be enough to weaponize people against it. The argument sometimes goes, there might be well-intentioned people out there in HR and beyond in companies who are trying to make workspaces more inclusive and more diverse, but that they're just doing it to tick boxes for organizations or corporations. And I hear from all kinds of people who ask, where are these efforts getting us? So how are you looking at this now? Yeah, you know, I, I think that the thing is, is it's not about what people are intending to do and what DEI experts are trying to do. It's about what they're empowered to do or not empowered to do. And that's on the entity that's bringing them into the space, right? So this argument that DEI is ineffective, it's not that DEI is ineffective. It's that corporations never intend on fully implementing what their DEI experts are trying to do. Right. So I have seen DI experts brought into spaces and they do all this work. They're interviewing employees. You know, they're they're making charts. They're doing all of this coming with really educated information of what can make a space more inclusive. And the corporations or the universities refuse to take it on. And they just say, no, thank you. We're, we're going to check a box. And so it becomes a checked box when the entity that brings them in decides it's a checked box. Hmm. But the work and the spirit with which a lot of this work is being done is truly important. But that's not going to change. You get rid of DEI. It's not as if these corporations are suddenly going to find a more meaningful way to address oppression in their spaces. They don't want to. you know. And so DEI... Experts are trying to do what they can with what little they have. And sometimes that can really make a big difference in the lives of individuals in that space. But it's certainly never going to be enough as long as these entities don't actually care. I want to ask you a question that I know you have uh, heard, or a gripe, I should say, and I have heard it. Almost everyone has heard it. It's like, oh my gosh, there you are again, talking about race and racism in the workplace and in the classroom. And oh, I'm just so sick of it. the last number of years, all this identity politics. What's your answer to that question when you hear that gripe? The thing that always is amazing to me about this is that everyone has identity and they move through the world with it. And white people, white men move through it very proudly. It's just been so normalized. They don't even have to name it. When you live in a society where the vast majority of things are built to reflect you, to suit you, you don't actually have to say that's what it is. But every person in the U.S., in Canada, has been racialized. And they have a racial identity. Studies have been done around this, have shown how easily you can activate white racial identity to get people to vote a particular way. Uh, we all have it. It's just that when everything serves it, you don't have to assert it. It's interesting that you say that, because sometimes when I have these conversations, um, you know, one of the things that I put out there is that people have always been hired, partially at least, because of their color of their skin. It was just that the white skin got you the jobs at some point, and now maybe the brown or black skin is getting you a job in some way, too. Absolutely. And when we look at studies about, like, who is deemed professional, who is deemed intelligent, skin tone, hair texture, features, all of that plays in time and time again. That is racialized whether people want to admit it or not. You write about specific calls to action, real tangible things. And sometimes, as you say, they're not the things that people might immediately jump to one's mind. They're, they're small things that people can do in their very own community. So I'm wondering if you can share a story from your writing, from your book that really sticks with you to sort of illustrate that. Oh, I mean, there are so many, you know, uh, one of my favorites is, you know, when I sat down to talk with Richie Reseda about his um, organization's success stories, which he founded while he was incarcerated in prison um, to teach incarcerated men and in, in especially black and brown incarcerated men um, in the ways of black feminism, how 
violent patriarchy had harmed them and caused them to harm themselves and community. So that you could have that measure of freedom no matter where you were, so that you could be, you know, radicalized into knowing how to create change, even from within prison. And as I sat down to talk with him about it, um, he said, actually, you know, I want to talk about business because I've, I'm doing abolitionist business now. And we got to talk about how he's taking these principles into starting a business and having a consent-based business structure that isn't extractive or exploitative. And it was so beautiful for me to watch all of these different transitions that even one person can go through that is so consistent with liberatory values. And so what is a story like that? Like, what's, what's sort of our broader takeaway? Like, I, it's a specific story, but what are, you, what are you sort of saying to us all? I want people to understand that no matter where you come from, no matter what your education level, no matter what your interests, if you want to create change, you can, that there is space for you in this. And in fact, it's vital. And if you think I can't do this because I've never seen anyone like me doing this, we actually need you more than ever because your viewpoint is so vital to the work being done. Hmm. I'm glad you brought up the work being done. Um, because sometimes, you know, we see uh, a racial reckoning, um, a tragedy happens, people go out on the streets for a bit, people light candles in a park, and then they go home. And so I want you to talk to me about that action piece of all of this. Yeah, it is so important to understand that every big news story that we see about racial oppression, about violence against Black, brown, and indigenous communities um, that people get outraged about and they go into the streets about. There are people who have been working on these issues every day for years, uh, and if not decades, and that we have been finding ways, trying to find ways to survive these oppressive systems, that we have been building up those lists of demands you see, everything you know about, you know, whether or not to defund the police. Those are years and years of work that people have put in and study and conversations and, you know, in order to get to this point. And once the news cameras leave, that work continues. And so it's so important to not just plug in when it's interrupting your day, when it's making you feel bad because it's in the news and understand that this is a reality that we're living every day. And there are so many ways that violent white supremacy kills us. And it's, you know, only one one thousandth of the time does it make news in these sort of violent acts. But it's killing us when we go to the doctor's office. It's killing us in our workplaces. You know, it is denying us education and opportunity. And we have been fighting that every day. And we would really, really love some help. You just sort of outlined some of, um, you know, the wide variety of opinions and, and options, really, of how to improve our systems to bring about racial justice. You mentioned the police, which has been um, a big source of debate for the last number of years in your country and certainly in ours. The calls to defund them entirely, some, you know, call to divert budgets to other causes, um, somewhat change to policing, training differently, hiring more diverse officers. Jima, how's your own thinking about abolition versus reform changed over time? You know, for me, my idea of possibility broadened. What I thought I could ask for broadened. I, I think I, I've been at heart an abolitionist since I was 11 and a relative of mine was beat very badly by police. Um, I understood that I was not safe and there was no sense in which I would be safe with an officer around me and that something was fundamentally wrong with that. And of course, as I got older and studied, I was like, I don't want this. But I didn't think that was something I could say. So often the messaging is if it's absurd to say that you don't want policing, it's absurd to say you're an abolitionist, that instead what we need is reform. But 
when you do the work, you see that reform doesn't work. All it does is extend time in these systems. And these systems are very flexible and malleable and continue to grab power how they can. And we do have other ways. And so for me, my real evolution was understanding what our communities have been doing outside of these systems. Because we have so many communities, you know, in the U.S., in Canada, that know that they absolutely cannot call the police for any kind of safety issue. And yet they are still working to ensure their safety. They are still finding ways to try to resolve conflict. And when I realized that, that even though I was being told it was impossible, it was something that we're doing every single day, I realized that we all should have the audacity to demand something better to demand hmm. that these systems that have caused us so much harm be, be taken down and replaced with ones that can actually help. We often often hear about um, efforts to improve things through efforts of harm reduction. Yeah, and, and here's the thing. Harm reduction is never going to be abolition. Harm reduction is important, but only if you understand that that's what it is. The end goal should always be systems that actually serve us and ways of being that actually serve us and keep us safe. And while we do that, there are people who will be doing harm reduction work because we know that we can't wake up tomorrow and have these systems gone. And so we have to be able to get through this while we do the work. But what happens often is people will say, here's your harm reduction. It's a revolution. And it's not. And if we settle for that and think that it is and kind of take our eye off the ball, the system just claws back even any slight reforms that were made. And we've seen that since 2020. We're seeing in uh, in our city in Toronto the last number of uh, weeks and months and in many, many uh, cities across Canada and in the, U the U.S. The push to have police budgets increased by often police forces themselves. There have been very active efforts to defund the police movements, as we've been talking about. Um, but police budgets in most major centres have, have risen on both sides of the border in recent years. How do you measure success when you look at that movement? You know, I mean, this is where I absolutely see what I was talking about, where people were saying that this, you know, reform and harm reduction was revolution. Because not only when you sell it to the people, does that get people to stop asking for more, you can then activate that to activate fear in people who are afraid of communities of color. And you can create this whole story that says you're more unsafe now because of these great changes that were made, even though they weren't made and even though police budgets are increasing. And so right now what you have is a lot of fear in our carceral states about even just people becoming more aware of the harm of these systems. And so they're not only trying to get back what they've lost, they're trying to buffer it so that if we have another protest, and they know that they're going to keep killing civilians, they know that they're going to find more ways to outrage us, that they won't lose any power again. And so that's really the state that we're in right now. They're ratcheting up fear. We're seeing police, you know, um, stations, you know, police forces around the continent doing these kind of silent protests where they're not doing their jobs so that they can then point and say, see, this is what happens when you cut budgets, right? To get people more afraid so that they can continue to consolidate power because they don't even want people to be aware that there's a problem. That to them is such a huge threat that even the minuscule progress we made in raising awareness in 2020 is something they want to make sure never happens again. You know, when we talk about race and racism and, and racial equality, um, it's divisive. Like so many things that we talk about. You got to be in one camp or the other. And we're sort of, a lot of people would say, like, we've stopped talking to each other, that there is a common goal here, that humans should be treated equally. Um, what are the conversations you'd like to see us having these days? You know, I would really love if 
people could just sit with their fear and unhappiness and give voice to it without immediately saying, I, I blame you. I would like, because what we have right now is a vast majority of our populations feeling exploited, feeling underrepresented, underserved, and some of us much more so than others because of the color of our skin, because of disability, because of gender, because of all of these things. And yet we it's weaponized because we don't talk about it, because we're told that it's a personal failure or someone stole from us. But when we can actually talk about how we move through the world and see these similarities and see how much we're being exploited and the ways in which all of these things are used to oppress us all, racism is used to oppress people of all races. And yet, because we don't talk about it, people can't see that, you know, it's hard for white people to see that, oh, the fear of being compared to a black person or having the salary of a black person, you know, keeps me from looking at asking why my boss has 90% of the profits, right? And so these are the sort of things that are used against us because we can't just say, I feel exploited. I feel hurt. I feel tired. Can we talk about these experiences and find out what we have in common? Find out, you know, where we can free each other. You write that maintaining this status quo in many ways can be chalked up to a war on imagination. So just before I let you go, what it, what is the power of imagination in this kind of work as you see it? You know, so much of the story of populations of color has been based on lies lies told about us that we had no consent in, lies about what we're capable of, who we are, how we feel, what we need. But also, that's the story of oppression of all peoples. We're told this is the best you can have to hope for. This is all there is. This is what you were made for. At most, you can climb up this, you know, arbitrary scale that we have created. And that's just not true. We are capable of so much. These systems were built by people no better than us. And we can build something more. We can we can get, put our heads together, take the amazing creativity that our communities, our dis, most disenfranchised communities have had to have for multiple generations and say, what can we build that can truly serve us? But that requires radical imagination of what freedom could look like for us and what we could have. Ichioma, thank you so much. I appreciate your time today and, and your writings. given us all a lot to think about and work towards. Thank you. Thank you so much for your questions. It was a pleasure. Ijeoma Olu's new book is called Be a Revolution, How Everyday People Are Fighting Oppression and Changing the World, and How You Can Too. I'm Nala Ayed, host of Ideas. In this age of clickbait and online shouting, Ideas is a meeting ground for people who want to deepen their understanding of the world. Join me as we crack open a concept to see how it plays out over place and time and how it matters today. From the rise of authoritarianism to the history of cult movies, no idea is off limits. Ideas is on the CBC Listen app or wherever you find your podcasts. It has been another barn burner of a week in American politics. Former President Donald Trump solidified his hold over the Republican Party last night after winning the South Carolina primary. 
His only prominent opponent was South Carolina's own former governor, Nikki Haley. But despite losing in her home state, Haley is vowing to continue her campaign. Meanwhile, a ruling from the Alabama Supreme Court about frozen embryos has brought the abortion debate back into the national conversation. And the U.S. Congress still isn't ponying up more money for the war in Ukraine. So lots to discuss. David Tribman is a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist as well as the former editor of the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette. He's currently a professor in American politics. Politics at Montreal's McGill University. David, good morning to you. Good morning to you, Pia. Uh, Trump's victory last night, hardly surprising. Maybe the split was 60-40. Um, the former president had been leading in all the polls leading up to South Carolina's primary. But what does this mean for him now? He seems to be, you know, um, just carving his path straight to the Republican nomination. Well, it, look, it looks like he is the inevitable uh, nominee. Now, Nikki Haley is hanging around hanging in and hanging tough. So we'll see what happens um, in Michigan on Tuesday. And of course, there are 20 other states and territories in the next two weeks. So there's a lot to happen, um, but it doesn't seem to be much happening for Nikki Haley anywhere. Why is she staying in? You know, last night uh, in her speech, she said, look, she got 40%. She said that's a substantial uh, number of people who don't want Donald Trump, uh, at least in South Carolina, amongst Republicans as their nominee. But beyond that, what's driving her to keep her campaign going despite these what are seemingly insurmountable odds? Well, first of all, she has a message. Second of all, she has almost nothing else to do. And she has enough money to keep going. She um, she's enjoying this. She's enjoying needling uh, Trump. She's irritating Trump, which, of course, for her is a uh, sport. And she's very, very good at it. And there's no reason for her to stop. She doesn't seem to have uh, any gene that will allow her to be humiliated or mortified. A normal person uh, having lost uh, 60% of the vote in her native state might have, uh, might have left the uh, campaign. And I should point out that candidates who lose their home state don't get the nomination. No no presidential nominee since 1972, when the modern process began, has won the nomination um, without winning uh, his or her native state, or not native state, but home state. So she's uh, running uh, against uh, logic and against history. Hmm. It is, however, not uncommon to see candidates continue their campaigns during the primary primaries, despite seeing the writing on the wall. When you think of Haley, like, is there... A time when you think, like, look, this has worked out for a politician in the past, that maybe she's, against all the odds, got something here. I can't think of any example except for George Herbert Walker Bush, in which it's actually worked out for the, for the uh, candidate who hung in against perceived inevitability of the rival. Now, we're looking back at, uh, what, is, what is that? That's uh, 44 years ago when uh, George Bush, the senior, became uh, vice president and was a launching pad to become president after he hung in um, with, uh, uh, against Governor Reagan, who became President Reagan. I can't think of another example where that actually worked. Hmm. The interesting thing to watch with Nikki Haley is sort of her trajectory. You recently wrote that when Haley first was elected governor of South Carolina, this was a 14 years ago, I guess, back in 2010, she was, as you write, quote, the very model of the Republican establishment of the time. So talk about, you know, the the change in her, but also the change in the establishment. Well, I mean, the Republican establishment that 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 we talked about recently as 2010 (coughs) is, I think you might say, 
the establishment emeritus. It's not the current establishment. The current establishment is revolves around Donald Trump. He is so traumatized and so transformed the Republican Party that he is the first, I think, I can't think of another, uh, going back until uh, 1828, that's uh, even before you and I were covering politics, <laughs> Pia, uh, when an insurgent became the establishment. That was Andrew Jackson. This is... This is um, this is uh, Donald Trump. I mean, I think you might think of uh, Ronald Reagan from 76 to 80, but I think basically he is sui generis, an insurgent who is uh, was the establishment, a rebel who's the establishment. What do you chalk that up to? Like, why does he have in 2024, uh, given, you know, uh, his, his first time in office, but given all the challenges he's facing legally, uh, now the the, the court um, decisions against him. What do you chalk up sort of his ability to galvanize the Republicans at this point to? Much as this may discomfort uh, Democrats, much as this may, may discomfort the shrinking Republican establishment, much as it may discomfort Canadians in general, Donald Trump has a message and it's a message about alienation, about marginalization, about being left behind or being ignored. Now, if you think about Donald Trump himself, he he may seem on the surface not to be the personification of his voters who tend not to have um, college educations, who tend not to have very much money, who tend to have blue-collar jobs. That does not describe Donald Trump one bit. He has an Ivy League education. He's as rich as Croesus or was before all these uh, court um, uh, decisions. Uh, and he is a high flyer with his own airplane and, and at one point his own airline. So he has nothing in common with these people. And yet he has the most important thing in common with them. He, he is, by um, surface measures, the kind of person who would be embraced by, say, the, Ma the Manhattan elite the kind of people on the Upper East Side and Upper West Side who are, have fancy parties and talk about um, Voltaire and uh, Corneille <laughs> and Racine uh, with ease, uh, and they hate him. They think he's an arriviste. They think he's vulgar. They think he's uh, louche. And so he has been alienated in much the same way the voters who support him have been alienated. He truly is uh, the personification of that movement in his own very narrow world. The Democrats um, would like, by most estimations uh, from their party, would like nothing more than to see the, the, the rematch that seems to be shaping up between Joe Biden and Donald Trump. Given how well, as you say, like it or not, that Trump is doing with Republicans as he goes through these primaries, why would the Democrats say, like, this is the guy we want to run against? It's a mystery to me too, Mia, because, uh, because if you look at it, if it's one-on-one, -on -one, Trump versus um, Trump versus Biden, there's a 50% chance that Trump wins, and that is the ne plus ultra of of democratic uh, fears. Um, yes, Haley has a better chance of winning than does um, than does Trump, but Haley has a zero percent chance of being Donald Trump in the White House, and Donald Trump has a hundred percent chance of being. Donald Trump in the White House. So I don't understand why Democrats who think that Trump is the ultimate threat to American democracy would rather have him as a Republican nominee. It's a mystery to me. Hmm. I'm Pia Chattopadhyay. I'm speaking with Pulitzer Prize winning journalist David Shribman. Uh, David, one of the uh, 
big kind of issues uh, that many people think will come to dominate this campaign is about reproductive rights. Uh, the Democrats certainly want this to be an issue uh, that is talked about over the next several months. Uh, the Alabama Supreme Court recently ruled that frozen embryos should be considered children, meaning that a person could be held liable for destroying them. This has led to at least two Alabama healthcare facilities to pause its in vitro fertilization programs, its IVF programs. Given that we're now seeing the impacts of Roe uh, v. Wade being overturned on the ground, um, how much impact will the debate over reproductive rights have on this election campaign? Dem- Democrats want it to, but how, how do you see this playing out? I think everybody thinks it's going to be an issue, so much so that Donald Trump uh, and others in the Republican Party have come out against this uh, notion in Alabama. Uh, tr- Trump seems to want to be an almost moderate uh, pro, um, uh, 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 almost a moderate opponent of um, abortion rights. Uh, he uh, and surely um, uh, Ms. Haley feels this way. It seems to be a very, very serious issue. Uh, for Republicans endangering them in the fall election, not only uh, in Alabama, but elsewhere. And that's why Trump and others are running away from it so so fast. And that's why Democrats are, uh, are um, though, uh, finding this, uh, this decision appalling, are, are approaching this with glee as a possible uh, way to defeat Trump. Hmm. The other thing I wanted to ask you about uh, was sort of foreign policy on the American front, and I know there's a lot of issues on that. But I want to ask you specifically about Ukraine, because, of course, this weekend marks two years since Russia's full-scale invasion. Uh, Russia's been making uh, gains on the battlefield once again. Ukrainian forces forces and and, uh, politicians have said, look, this is because of dwindling supplies of weapons and ammunition from the West, that they need more. Um, Donald Trump has played this outsized role in convincing Republicans in Congress to stop aiding Ukraine. Given his influence in that arena, what could the future of America's commitment to Ukraine and NATO look like if, if in the coming months and, and if Trump becomes president once again in November? In one word, uncertain. Now, there are two surprises here, Pia. One is that this war has taken two years and Russia still hasn't won, which is a measure of the... Uh, of the bravery, the courage, the grit, and the uh, and the uh, allied uh, support uh, to, um, uh, to to Ukraine, but also a measure of how far the Republicans have moved. You know, the Republicans in the nineteen fifties used to speak of the captive nations. Uh, Ukraine would have been among them. They were speaking specifically, of course, of um, Latvia, Lithuania, and Estonia. The Republicans were militant about not only uh, not only um, opposing uh, Soviet domination of those three states and others, uh, but um, determined to liberate them. Now you have the Republican Party saying, well, we don't really care that much. That's a huge change in 50 or 60 years in the profile of one of the major parties Hmm. uh, in the world. So it's a very, very important uh, change, a very important question, and it raises deep uncertainty uh, for the the war in uh, the eastern plains of uh, Europe. And the other war, the one that's going on in in Gaza between Israel and Hamas, this is proving challenging politically uh, for President Joe Biden. And I'm wondering, in you know, again, we have several months till November, but these foreign big foreign policy issues that are being debated amongst Americans, how much do you think that's going to influence the campaign? Okay, we may have uh, several months to the election, but we only have 48 hours until the Michigan primary. Michigan is the state with the most Arab Americans. Michigan is a swing state. 
Um, it has to, absolutely has to be won by either uh, Trump or um, a Biden to make the 270 electoral votes they need. And uh, there'll be a test on Tuesday about whether Democrats flee or protest in some manner uh, in the Michigan primary, uh, Joe Biden's policies, which lean toward Israel and um, uh, for which he's received unremitting grief uh, in parts of um, of Michigan. So we will watch this uh, live in 48 hours. We'll have a better sense then. But it has broken the um, it has broken the pro-Israel um, consensus in the Democratic Party, uh, and it has not stiffened the pro-Israel um, uh, consensus in the Republican Party in a way you might have expected. Hmm. You covered your fair share of U.S. elections. How many? I think 12. Okay, 12. So as you watch this all unfold, and as an American um, working in Canada, um, what themes do you think we should be keeping our eyes out on? Certainly uh, isolationism versus uh, engagement. Uh, certainly uh, issues of race, which were um, explored in some detail and with great passion on your program a few minutes ago. Uh, certainly issues of gender and the gender gap. That could really hurt um, Trump. I'd watch for the uh, suburbs, the votes in the suburbs, but I would also watch if there's a to see if there's further migration of people who are part of the New Deal de um, coalition that began in 1932. Working people, blue-collar voters who were staunch Democrats, who were really who um, elected uh, Truman, Kennedy, Johnson, et cetera, et cetera, whether they continue to migrate into the Republican Party. That's the most important question in American politics, with the exception of race right now. David Tribman, appreciate you joining me on this Sunday morning. Thank you. Thank you very much. David Tribman is a former editor of the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette and now a professor in American politics at the Max Bell School of Public Policy at Montreal's McGill University. This weekend marks the second anniversary of Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine. And of course, there are many impacts of this war, including displacing millions of Ukrainians, thousands of whom, 210,000 in fact, who have ended up here in Canada. That's the number of Ukrainian refugees our country has welcomed in the past two years. About 2,400 of those Ukrainian refugees have made their way to Newfoundland and Labrador. And while many of the recently arrived people have found it difficult to find housing and work, we're now going to share a story about something that has been easier to find. That's community. In this case, a band of musicians. Here's producer Caroline Hillier with her documentary, The Sunflower Duo, which we first brought you last February. We're just set up in the living room, so... Oh, it's fun to start. We rehearsed today and we have helpers. It's Calvin her cat. He all the time jumped to piano and tried to help me. Calvin the cat walks across the keyboard and plops down and sprawls out over the keys. <laughs> you can't see on the radio, but like Calvin's a big cat. He's like 15 pounds. So like yeah. when he lies down, the, half the keyboard is covered. I tried to play and he like down and look at me like, what do you want? Like, like, Calvin is cutting in on rehearsal time for this part Ukrainian, part Newfoundland duo. Hi, my name is Ala Melnichuk. I'm from Ukraine. I came here with first Ukrainian play. And this is... I'm Maria Cherwick, um, and I'm a violinist and fiddle player, and I live here in St. John's. 
They make up the sunflower duo. In case you don't know how to say uh, sunflower in Ukrainian, it's Sonyashnik. Now, when Alice says she came on the first Ukrainian plane, what that means here in Newfoundland and Labrador is that she arrived on the province's first chartered flight from Poland to St. John's. When we came here, I feel here like at home, literally. The government of Newfoundland and Labrador reacted to the Ukrainian war in a unique way. It sent a small team to Poland to essentially recruit refugees free flights, and hotel stays. It was a humanitarian effort, but also an effort to help boost the province's dwindling population and low immigrant retention rates. Everybody knows about Toronto, Vancouver, you know, uh, I don't know, Calgary. But I saw beautiful pictures, and it was ocean photo with ocean and rocks, and I said, wow, where is so beautiful? We start searching for this photo, and we found it in Newfoundland. The free charter to this new, beautiful place was a surprise. And so, too, was how quickly it all came together. I got a mail. It was 3rd or 2nd of May, and 9th of May it's supposed to be charted. So she called her fiancé and said, What we will do? It's only five days. We didn't expect. We didn't. He said, we will go. Like, pack your baggage, send uh, what we don't need to Ukraine, like, five days. And we're at, my mom was like, what, 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 where you go, what, whatever, like, what? So, yeah, it was so quickly. <laughs> when she landed, Premier Andrew Fury had a welcome message over the plane's loudspeaker. I just wanted to take a moment to welcome you all to Canada and to our beautiful province of Newfoundland and Labrador. We hope we have everything that you need. We are here to welcome you. We're here to open our hearts and our homes to you. While Alla had a good feeling about her new home, she definitely didn't see herself playing on stage here. And I even didn't expect that I will play here Ukrainian music, Mm -hmm. Ukrainian classical music, because in Ukraine I was a classical uh, pianist. But along came Maria, a classically trained violinist. This is actually really exciting for me because I, you know, I trained as a classical violinist and I graduated uh, with my master's in classical violin. Since graduating, I've kind of veered more into the world of playing fiddle with bands and stuff just because that was kind of like the work that was more readily accessible. Maria is of Ukrainian heritage herself. In fact, up until recently, she was part of one of the only Ukrainian families in St. John's, who together make up the speed rock folk band called the Kubasonics. It was at a Kubasonics show that Maria and Alla first met. We talked about music, we talked about, like, Ukraine and politics, and we talked about cats, and we talked about, yeah. like, you know, and there's 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 a lot that we have in common, you know, like, music school. Um, you can talk like, okay, we need to get together and play. And first our rehearse, we even did, like, okay, stop, here will be loud, here will be soft, here we play a little... No, we just start playing from the beginning to the end, and she feels me, and I uh, feel her, and that's all. So all the time when we're playing together, we don't talk about, okay, we need here this, we need here this. No, we just feel and play, play and play. (laughs) 
you have uh, sugar like this? No, nope. I'm good. Brave. Now, and have a cookie. Have a little cookie. Alla is also a piano teacher, and when she arrived in St. John's, the first thing she did was put up an ad to buy a keyboard. Shelley Neville, another well-known local musician, replied. I responded to um, her request on Facebook Marketplace and said, I don't have a keyboard, but I have, you know, a piano in my house, and you can come practice there or teach there. And um, so let's go out and have a look at the piano. There you go. <laughs> Yay! It's just out here. Alla had already bought a keyboard to teach her online students who are now scattered all over Western Europe. But that was only the start of their friendship. So then Alla came over and sat down at the piano first thing. We made the connection of music that I didn't know when she said she played piano. I mean, you know, lots of people can play the piano. Uh, But I mean, she can really play the piano, yes. And um, Peter is usually, you know, someone that I do gigs with, and he wasn't available. So I said, hmm, <laughs> wonder if Olive would like to do this with me. And uh, so we did. So she learned her first few Newfoundland folk songs, St. John's Waltz, and my Harbor Grace excursion, <laughs> excursion Around the Bay, which she loves. Uh, is this the key? Yeah. I know. Is it? Yeah. Ah, okay. Wonder. We, we, we didn't cross <laughs> off. We didn't practice. Yeah, we didn't talk. We tried. Right. Go ahead. Shelley and Maria have all played on stage together, but the Sunflower duo is on its own for its upcoming show. Because people may be a little bit confused, <laughs> people not confused, because we all the time, three of us, three of us, and we definitely next time uh, invite Shelley, and we already know what we will sing, we already speak with her. So are you ready? Yes. The show is also a fundraiser. As I said, my stepfather-in-law, he in Ukrainian troops, so I will ask maybe they need something because they're now in a difficult situation too. He's actually fighting. Yeah, he now is in the worst, uh, in hell in Ukraine. He in a, I cannot tell where he is, but he is in a very bad, where he die every day, a lot of soldiers. Even if you read news and you don't know these people, it's so hurt. Like you all the time. Um, sorry, <laughs> it's your it's your country. It's your people. It, if you even know them, it's still hurt. And sorry. Shelley and Alla don't talk much about the war. For me, I feel like I know her all my life. I've always wanted, you know, a sister, I guess. (laughs) And all of a sudden, 
Allah shows up. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, and she needed someone and I needed someone too. So it just made a whole lot of sense. Shelley was also her maid of honor. When I told Shelley that we won't get married here, she helped me and everything. Like, click, 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 click. I even, I, I just sit and look, how did she do in this? First, they rummaged through the costume bank at the theater Shelley performs at. And there was a dress that was donated, never worn, tag still on it. And uh, this one fit her perfectly, which needed a little alteration. Then a donated wedding cake, a meal from the theater chef, and an ocean view. It was just magic. And then I spoke to Peter, yeah. my friend Peter Halley, and I said, Peter, Allah's dream is to get married on the ocean. He said, well, there's only one place to do that, isn't it? Lower Island Cove, my place. And he's a commissioner, wedding commissioner. So he performed the ceremony. Allah's mother was on FaceTime. It was silence, only the ceremony. And from my phone, like my mom, if I could understand something, I wish I can understand something in Ukrainian. We start laughing. Like, I said, can you do like quietly? Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah, Mama, fine. like I don't understand anything. They're so beautiful, but I don't understand anything. <laughs> Are you ready? And yeah. it will be song. <clears throat> it's strange for me now. <laughs> days before the Sunflower Duo's show, about 70 tickets are sold. The hope is the audience will be full of Newfoundlanders and Ukrainians. We're excited to share this music, um, you know, with anybody that hasn't heard it before. You know, there's probably people who love classical music or people who are just curious to see what it's all about. After this rehearsal, Maria gives Alla a ride to her virtual piano lesson. Not only has she kept her virtual students, she's also gained more at her full-time job in St. John's at Halliday's Music Studio. Great! We put start of heart. Yeah! Great job! So, a job, a band, a wedding, oh, and a house. I just like for a joke probably like said my husband, maybe I ask about mortgage. Oh, I don't think that we have any chain. I said, but maybe like what what happened if I just ask? I ask and everything <laughs> happened, you know, it's like like dun, 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 like with Hello. wedding. So this is your house. Yeah. Hi. Hello. 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 Tonight at Alla's a borscht dinner party. Maria couldn't make it, but lots of other new friends did. Great place. It's time to eat. Come on. The food is on the table. And cross borscht, and when you eat borscht, after only will be potatoes. Food and drink and laughter and songs to raise a rafter. Happy ever after, oh may we always be. <laughs> this house was bought on a budget and needs some renovations, but it has the most important thing, a spare room for Allah's mother or mother-in-law if they decide to leave Ukraine. We are happy that we are here, but we cannot be happy. I don't know how to explain. We don't feel happiness because because what happened in Ukraine. They're strong in Ukraine. I called my mom, oh my gosh, to sit in 24 hours without heat and without power, and she's smiling, everything okay, like everything good. I'm like, oh, like everything good. She said, no, no, I was scared, we in the bed, and she smiled. Like, if 
she smile if she's strong like we're supposed to be more strong Not all Ukrainians who came to St. John's have found jobs or even homes. Hundreds are still living in hotels and haven't been able to find permanent housing. Not everyone speaks English, and they can't all find jobs in their chosen field. The day of the Sunflower Duo's first official show is a good old Newfoundland snowstorm. But as Alla puts it, the show must go on. What's next for this duo? More shows, just not in the winter. How do you feel? Uh, good. <laughs> A little bit tired, but good. I'm happy that people... Uh, uh, came even uh, with this uh, not very good weather day. Uh, I know that, uh, yeah, it was emotional. They plan to record music, but there's always that reminder of why they've come together. Look out into this audience and see so many like Ukrainian people here. It's beautiful, but I wish, of course, that nobody had to come here. I wish that everybody could be safe at home. And, you know, obviously we wish that it was for better reasons than this. Thank you to the CBC's Caroline Hillier for her documentary, The Sunflower Duo, which we first brought you just a little bit over a year ago. We're happy to report, a year and some later, that The Sunflower Duo are still making music together. You're listening to The Sunday Magazine. Last week on our program, we brought you the latest round of our monthly challenge, That's Puzzling. As it happens, co-host and writer Chris Howden joined me in the ring, along with Nikki Reclitas, who's a family doctor in Ottawa, who took time out of her very busy schedule to play with us. Thank you, Nikki. Nikki took home the win. Well, judging by our inbox, many of you want a shot at victory as well. And in order to earn a chance to join us in March, we asked you to come up with a word that describes realizing you care about the Oscars, even though you have not seen any of the movies. And we sure did get our fair share of A-list entries. Andrea Huang's a producer here on The Sunday Magazine. She works on That's Puzzling behind the scenes. Andrea, hi. It's nice to have you come out of the producer shadows and into the on-air ring. Hey, Pia. Pia, do you consider yourself a cinephile? A cinephile. Okay, so that is someone, <laughs> I feel like we're pulling that's puzzling. Um, that is someone who just like likes movies, right? Yeah. I mean, who, who, so who's not a cinephile? Like, do you know anyone who says, I don't like movies? I think cinephile is you have to be a bit of a film snob and like oh. you would wa- have watched all of the movies ahead of the Oh, Oscars. like a movie buff. Yeah. But, like, maybe not snob, but buff. Like, sure. I've, okay, so then um, this year I've seen some, I like the movies, I just 
like everyone, I don't, quote, have enough time in my life to watch all the movies. Well, I think, judging from our extensive mail, I think a lot of our listeners are cinephiles, and a lot of them came up with some pretty punny words based off of that term. So Natalie Valancourt is in the Lower Laurentians in Quebec. She had the word cenophile, spelt S-E-E-N-O-P-H-I-L-E. So it incorporates the word scene and the word no. <laughs> And then there was cinephony, which I think is pretty self-explanatory with the word phony in there. That's what Deborah Lynch in Toronto came up with. I like both of those. A lot of our entries, Andrea, use the word Oscar, obviously. Uh, there's also a lot of fun to be had with the name Oscar. So Matthew Shoemaker from the great city of Saskatoon. Hi, Matthew. Hi, hometown. Sent us two subtly different yet similar words. So Oscurious, combining Oscar and Curious, and Oscarious, a mix of Oscar and Ficarious. Mm -hmm. um, sometimes people get starstruck or awestruck by celebrities at award shows. Mm -hmm. That inspired David Schindler of Mackenzie, British Columbia, to come up with Oscar struck. From Vancouver, Greg Weir submitted the word Oscarity, which is a blend of Oscar and sincerity. He even provided a definition, which is the feeling of genuine interest or admiration for the Oscar awards, even without having seen any of the nominated films. There have been so many great entries, but I think we should give the last word to eight-year-old Noah Clark in Ottawa, who I think, Pia, is our youngest ever wordsmith. Mm -hmm. So Noah sent in Osknomovia, <laughs> with the word no in it again. Uh -huh. And by the way, Noah says his favorite movie is the original Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. First of all, I love that we have um, people in single digits listening to our show, and that's puzzling. So thank you, Noah. I appreciate that. Secondly, original Choc Charlie and Chocolate Factory, amazing. Gene Wilder, amazing. He's I a purist. Know. He's a purist. I love uh, my. I watch it with my kids. We also, that would be our favorite one. We've seen Wonka, which isn't quite Charlie and Chocolate Factory, but with Timothy Chamelet, uh, which is also very good. And I like the Johnny Depp, um, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. But that's me proving to you, Andrea, that I am a cinephile. <laughs> uh, but the Gene Wilder original version. I'm, I'm with Noah. I vote for Timmy. <laughs> Thanks, Andrea. Thanks, Pia. It's Chalamet. I always say that wrong. Uh, listen, we love your entries so much. We get hundreds and hundreds of entries for That's Puzzling. So just because you don't hear your uh, on air, do know that we read them all and we talk in the office and we love them. So thank you for sending them in. Next Sunday, we will bring you the next round of That's Puzzling. I want to remind you that if you missed our last round or any of our last rounds, uh, you can hear them all by going to our website, cbc.ca slash Sunday. Well, if the winter blues have you down and that's puzzling is not enough of a salve for that, perhaps this will be. Spring officially arrives in just a little more than three weeks. And if you're anything like I am, this just puts a spring in my step. Because let's face it, winter is hard. It is cold. Shoveling absolutely sucks. It takes twice as long to get anywhere. And um, once you get where you're going, kind of seems like everybody is sneezing and coughing. People are generally grumpy. Did I mention it's cold, et cetera, et cetera? Gripe away, my friends, except that producer Adam Killick would like to have a word to urge you and I to turn the other frostbitten cheek and give winter a second chance. Is this a sound you recognize? 
How about this one? But I'm sure this one's a little easier. The first thing you heard was the sound of cross-country skis gliding over snow. The second, skates on ice. The third, a cozy campfire. These are all things that I associate with winter, but it turns out that most Canadians don't like winter. A Leger poll conducted about a year ago found that only 4% of Canadians pick winter as their favorite season. And 60% of us agree with the sentence, I don't like winter. So what's to be done? Are we going to remain a nation of people that cower inside for six months of the year? Or could we maybe trade some of our sniveling for a pair of snowshoes? So hey, come over here, sit down next to the fire, pour yourself some hot chocolate, and we'll see what we can do about learning to like winter. I found uh, around the world that there are three broad strategies that we can really use to embrace winter as a season. I'm Carrie Leibowitz. I'm a health psychologist and the author of the forthcoming book, How to Winter. So one is to appreciate winter broadly. So this means both sort of accepting winter for what it is and not wanting it to be summer or another season and um, really leaning into the opportunities that winter provides, especially for things like slowing down, resting, having a little bit more of a quiet, contemplative, peaceful time of year, um, and really appreciating that winter is a time when we get to do things like cozy indoor activities or maybe indoor hobbies. So um, I'm a amateur ceramicist and, you know, right now I'm in two pottery classes because I want to spend two nights a week when it's dark and cold and rainy, you know, inside making ceramics. Um, so whatever that is for you, you know, knitting, writing, music, whatever, really trying to see winter as a time when we get to do these things. Um, and sort of appreciating winter in what we notice about the season and also in the words that we use to describe the season. So we, how we talk about winter, how we talk about winter weather, trying to have an, a, an eye towards appreciation and uplifting the things we enjoy rather than just, you know, bemoaning the things that are unpleasant. The second broad strategy is to make winter special. So this is really to use your behaviors to make the most of these winter opportunities, right? So you can only eat dinner by candlelight when the sun sets earlier. But if you don't actually light the candles and make it cozy, then you're not really turning the darkness into something special. It's just going to be darkness. Same for sort of leaning into these hobbies, right? If you use your behavior to... um 
lean into the season by pursuing cozy, restful indoor hobbies, knitting, reading, gathering in front of the fireplace. Even, you know, binge watching Netflix can be a really sort of cozy, indulgent thing with the right lighting and the right atmosphere and the right mindset. So what are the things that you can do to sort of celebrate and uplift the season? And that includes a lot of things like, you know, hygge, which we know is, you know, huge and very popular out of Denmark, making things cozy, but also maybe things like going to the sauna, eating special foods that maybe you only eat in the winter. So um, in Japan, you know, they eat Japanese hot pot when it's cold out. Maybe that's fondue. Maybe that's hearty stews or Sunday roasts. Um, but whatever it is, sort of really looking at winter as the time of year that you get to do these things and using your behaviors to make winter a special time where you do these things that you look forward to all year. And then the third strategy that I observe is to get outside. And this is something people in Scandinavia are really good at. Um, they have a saying, there's no such thing as bad weather, only bad clothing. Um, but there's this idea that the weather and the cold and the dark is not a reason to stay indoors. Um, I currently live in Amsterdam, and so I'm learning to bike in the rain. And the Dutch have a similar expression. The Dutch say, you're not made of sugar, you won't melt in the rain. And I think a lot of us who view winter as limiting do so because we feel like we can't enjoy being outside when it's rainy or it's windy or it's dark or it's cold. But when we bundle up and we get outside, whether that's for, you know, cross-country skiing or snowshoeing or snowmobiling, if you're lucky to live somewhere snowy, or just, you know, going for a walk, going for a bike ride, bird watching, you know, playing out with your dog, going to the seaside um, in the middle of winter, when we really sort of dress for the weather, we can be surprised at how nice it can be to be outside, even when it's cold, even when it's rainy, and we can come to have a different relationship with the outdoors in the winter. But getting outside, even when it's brisk, even when it's damp, um, is really important for our winter, for our winter well-being. We know that both movement and fresh air are natural antidepressants. And so having a routine where you get outside, even if it's less often than you do at other times of year, um, having a routine where you get outside regularly in the winter um, is a really effective strategy for combating the winter blues. So that's the philosophy. But how can we actually do this in our cities? You're a cyclist, so you probably noticed this. And it, it's not just about the infrastructure for winter cycling. It's also about maintenance. If those bike lanes aren't cleared, people will stop riding. I'm Isla Tanaka, and I'm the winter city planner for the city of Edmonton. We very much have a car culture here that doesn't exist the same way in other places. And so if people get up in the morning... They get into their vehicle in, that's in an attached garage. They drive to work, park in an underground parkade, and then they walk up to the office. They don't have to step outside at all. And so we become disconnected 
Like we've built our cities so that we can hibernate from the winter. Whereas in Japan and in Europe, in places where there's much more of a walking culture, much more public transportation, people are outside. They step outside, they know what it's like. And if you're outside every day, you know, you know that minus 10 can be very comfortable. But if you're spending all of your time inside and you suddenly step outside into minus 10, it can be quite a shock. (laughs) We do have learn-to-ski classes that are fairly affordable and they get rentals uh, included in that. Uh, So that's uh, one of the things the city does to help newcomers learn how to cross-country ski. We also give a grant to two of the local ski hills that are actually right inside the city. Uh, One, you can actually see our downtown from the ski hill. And we give them a grant so that they can provide free ski and snowboard lessons to um, mostly to to youth um, from lower income families and also to newcomers so they can try skiing. And we also work with a group called Bike Edmonton. And we have provided them with a grant to uh, run a studded tire challenge. So the past few winters, they have had this challenge where people have to try winter cycling and then um, and, and sign up to say they will, you know, they will try winter cycling and they can get a free pair of studded tires. The patios that attract the most people are ones that tend to be south-facing or west-facing, the ones that get the afternoon light. So if we have um, a, a patio that's on the south side of a building and it is blocked from the wind, like sheltered, sheltered from the wind, and it captures that afternoon sunshine, that little space creates a microclimate that's 10 to 15 degrees Celsius warmer than the ambient temperature. So it can be minus 10 but feel like plus 5 in a space. And so we had... Uh, we had over 20 last year, and then we offered a grant this past winter for up to $2,000 per patio uh, to help, you know, in build their patio a bit more or maybe even host a, they could even hire a DJ with the money and, and host a patio party. So we were really very open as to what they could do with that money, and we now have over 30 this winter. We plan for winter activities first, then we know we've got all of the infrastructure to make that space comfortable in the wintertime. In the summer, people are happy with a space where we can put out, put out tables and chairs and umbrellas, and they will spend time there. So um, winter's more challenging, but if we've got the right infrastructure, then it's okay. What is there to enjoy about winter in a cold, gray, slushy city in February or March? Um, I think trains us to sort of use our powers of attention to make us more sensitive to wonder and awe and beauty and pleasure and fun, even when those things might not be as obvious and we have to hunt for them a little bit more. So there you go. Easy, right? Just... Strap on a pair of skis and shoes off into the sunset. Well, maybe not quite that easy. But hey, life's too short to cower inside for half the year. So grab some friends, maybe a hockey stick or a toboggan, and get outside. 
and embrace that inner Canadian. Thank you, Adam. Adam Killick is a producer here on The Sunday Magazine. Our producers are Levi Garber, Brianna Goss, Andrea Huang, Adam Killick, Pete Mitten, and Aronde Williams. We had additional help from Emily Caravazio, Sam McNulty, and Susan McReynolds. Our senior producer is Howard Goldenthal. Our executive producer is Brian Colton. I'm Pia Chattopadhyay. Thank you so very much for lending us your ear. Till next Sunday. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.